Dear Father, we do thank you for the opportunities you've given us to teach over the years here and to hear the Word of God here. And now, Father, in this exciting time, maybe the opportunity to do uh, an even better work in a new place, as you might offer opportunity. We look forward to that, Father. We uh, pray for your blessing on that, for your direction in that. But, Father, we don't want to look past what we've already been given and what we have in front of us today, the book of Romans. We're here to teach it, Father. You're going to show us what's in it, and you're going to explain it to us as only you can. And then, Father, you're going to ask our our hearts to do something with what we've learned. That's the end of all of this, Father. It's to work for the glory of the kingdom, the glory of your name. Uh, Father, to take what we learn and to be uh, ministers to others. And so I ask, Father, that uh, what we'll learn tonight about the uh, security of our faith and about the certainty of it would not only give us confidence to walk according to what we know, but also, Father, to help those who are less certain and to uh, strengthen them. Give us that opportunity, Father. That would be a, a great joy in our heart, too, to share what we learn. Help us to see it in the right way so that we can explain it accurately to someone else. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we turn to chapter 5 tonight, new chapter. This chapter is the third part of block 4. I mean, the blocks are the ones I created. That's the way I structure the book. But in the third part of block 4, you get to chapter 5, the sufficiency of Christ's righteousness. This whole block, chapters 3, 4, and 5, this is... The core section in Paul's letter explaining how you receive the righteousness that's required to enter heaven. So this is the solution box for the problem of being unrighteous. How sinful men and women who fall short of the glory of God can obtain a solution to heaven outside themselves. And he began in chapter 3 with that explanation of how we get our righteousness by God through faith. Then he moved to chapter 4, and that was what we did the last couple weeks where he was explaining... The Old Testament proofs that this method of salvation, that of grace, is not new. It's always been the way it's been. Also that it's not by a Jewish identity. So now, in the third part of this block, in chapter 5, Paul addresses two things. There are two possible objections to his explanation of how you're saved by righteousness, by God's righteousness appropriated. The two questions that someone might ask, or the two objections they might ask, are first... You might ask, how can we be sure we're actually cleansed by our faith? How do I know I have the justification that I've been promised? As I stand here today, how do I know my account in heaven is actually clear? Because I'm still experiencing hardship. I'm still experiencing trials. I still have bad things happen to me. Might those bad things be evidence that God is still dissatisfied with me? Maybe I'm not so good with him after all, right? Are they an indication that I'm still in jeopardy because I lost my job or because I got cancer or because I see myself experiencing the consequences of my sin on a daily basis? You know, maybe I'm not so good with God after all. And don't tell me you haven't thought like this because even, even a Christian who's been around for a while and knows their Bible, you still get those moments where you start to just, just for a second, you might think, is it really still the case that God could like me? That I could still be saved. You know, I know it says I am, but man, I just don't understand it anymore for a moment. Sometimes those thoughts just race through our head. Second question he wants to address is how is this even possible? How does this plan even work? I mean, how can a ransom paid by one guy, though he be God, how can that be enough to pay for the sin problem of millions of people? Wouldn't we need one sacrifice for each of us? in order for this plan to work, right? One life for a life? How can one person die for everyone? That would seem to be like the math doesn't work. How can a sweeping plan of this kind rest on the shoulders of just one person? 
So Paul addresses both of those concerns in this chapter. And even if you've never thought of these particular questions yourself, what Paul's going to do in the course of answering these things is give us some bedrock theology that does help address other objections as well, things that might come along from other people's questions. So getting to the theology of this chapter is very important, understanding your faith. He takes these two questions in turn. The first one, the question of how do I know for sure that I'm justified by my faith, is answered in verses 1 through 11. And then he addresses the second question of how can one man's death pay a debt for so many people. He does that in the remainder of the chapter, after verse 11. We'll just take it as he writes it. So let's look at the first part, and we'll start in verses 1 through 5. Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this... But we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. So Paul opens with a classic conclusionary word. He says, therefore, and what he means is he's moving forward from that previous analysis of the Old Testament proofs, Now drawing conclusions from the fact that he's told you for sure that God's plan for salvation is through faith and not by works. And as you move into the text, it's important for you to understand that the conversation in this chapter, the whole of it, presupposes that you understand what I just said. It presupposes an understanding of justification by faith alone. These questions that he's addressing here, they they arise from the fact that he's just told you that it only takes faith in the sacrifice of Christ, to be saved. That's all it takes. Just faith in what God is doing through him. And for some, that sounds too easy. Have you ever heard that? Sometimes you'll hear that from someone who's very hard-hearted, and you'll tell them about the gospel, and they'll say, that that's just too easy. That question, it's too easy, never comes to your mind if someone has told you that you have to work your way to heaven. No one ever says that. How do you get to heaven? We well, have to be a really good person. That's too easy. No one ever says that. <laughs> And I'm saying that because this chapter could not exist except for the fact of the justification by faith alone doctrine. If it were the case that Paul was teaching that works were still involved at some level, you wouldn't need chapter 5 because no one would be concerned about the things that are in chapter 5. Because chapter 5 is all about questions that arise from knowing that it's only faith in Jesus that gets us to heaven. Notice in verse 1, Paul opens with that presupposition. He says, Therefore, that we know we're justified by faith alone. And the Greek verb tense, therefore, having been justified, the Greek verb tense is aorist tense. Some of you may know that that means it's an action that is complete in a moment, but the consequences continue forever. So it's a very specific tense in Greek we don't have in English, but it says that in being justified this way, you have been declared innocent, and that declaration happened in a moment, at the moment of your faith, but then that declaration never changes afterward. Nor will it ever change. So we are justified forever by the faith that we have. So now, how can we be sure this declaration never changes? That's the first question. Because Paul says we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Now, this is a very important concept in the New Testament. That is, peace with God. That word peace appears 58 times in just the epistles of the New Testament. One classic passage in Ephesians 2.14, Paul says... For Christ himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, speaking of Jew and Gentile, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh 
the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one God, in one body, to God, through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. Now, if we had more time, I'd spend time on what he's saying there in total, but it's enough to simply point out, Paul says Jesus Christ is our peace. That is, when he died on a cross, he put to death, Paul says, the cause for our enmity with God. The cause for your enmity with God, Paul says, were the commandments of the law. So those commandments convicted us of our sin. They stood, as it were, as silent witnesses to our sin, reminding us that we are in trouble with a holy God who will act in justice. It's like any time you've been convicted of some crime, and every time you see a reminder of that conviction, it just brings back the sense of guilt again. Or if you know you've done something wrong but never been held accountable for it, you're always a little leery looking over your shoulder whether they're going to finally catch up to you or not. That's the idea of of sorts here. There's enmity between us and God. We know that when we face God, we can't measure up to His standard, and that means we're in trouble. And then Jesus died. And Paul says when he did that, he took the penalty that we were worried about. So that once that penalty was paid, there's no longer any cause for enmity. God no longer has any reason to be our enemy. We are now at peace. And so the Bible's idea of peace with God is not like a Hallmark card. It's not you know, some mamby-pamby, ethereal idea of feeling good about your life or your circumstances or anything of that sort, or of being quiet in a you know, pretty place with grass around you or whatever. The idea of peace with God means freedom from condemnation under the law. It's the opposite of enmity with God. So instead of God being our adversary because of our sin, we now have a peaceful relationship with God. It's the difference between Adam walking with God in the garden and Adam barred from the garden with flaming angels at the gate. Our relationship with God, then, does not turn on emotion or feelings, though it invokes those things, yes, but it doesn't rest on those things. Sin sets us against God because it puts us in jeopardy of His judgment. But when there is no longer any cause for condemnation because the penalty was paid on our behalf, then the condemnation is removed and so is the jeopardy and we're now at peace again. So in verse 2, Paul says, It is Christ who gave us peace with the Father. We obtain peace with God by His death in our place. That's the grace of God by which we stand, he says. And then, notice the order of things here. It's going to come back later in this section. He says, We stand by this grace... Then he says, that grace became ours as we were introduced to it by a faith. And this is a chain of events here. First, there came the payment by God through his Son, which established peace. It made peace possible. Then later came our personal introduction to that act of grace by our faith in that payment. Right. So you and I are standing here today by God's grace exalting, Paul says, or you could use the word boasting, boasting in our hope of seeing God's glory one day. We boast in that future hope. He says we do that even though we endure tribulations of one kind or another, he says in verse 3, and our confidence and our hope in the face of those troubling things in this life, that's actually a very confusing issue for many unbelievers. If you've not noticed this already, maybe you're not showing them enough of your confidence, but if you're having a hopeful attitude in the midst of trial in the world, they have a hard time understanding why we feel the way we do. This is the, the essence of First Peter 3.15 when he says, be ready to give that defense. Because people see that in you and they wonder, 
Are you just oblivious? Are you just trying to fool yourself? Do you not pay attention to the news? Why are you with this hope? They'll ask questions like, how come bad things happen to good people? Or after disasters, they'll say, how can there be a loving God? These are the reactions of an unbelieving world to what they see going on around them. But what we will do in the midst of that, generally, is boast that we have peace with God and a glory to come that is our own glorification with Him, uh, a day in which God's name is praised around the whole world, a day in which Christ is ruling over all men, ultimately a world with no sin, free from the curse. And in light of that, the worse the world gets, the more we continue to hold to that hope. It's like an opposite reaction, right? The world gets worse and worse and worse, which only exaggerates or increases our own hope for what comes next. Where before we feared death, which is what the world fears, now we don't. And we feared trials of any kind because we had no assurance of what would come after them. But now we don't worry about tribulation because at its worst, it merely hastens us into our glory. So who can touch us? That's an attitude you only have when you understand what you have in Christ. So we endure suffering for his name's sake in whatever form it comes. And Paul says, as trials come and we endure them, perseverance becomes the product of that. Why do you persevere in the face of trials? Why don't you let it get you down or discourage you or put an end to your walk with Christ? Because of what I just said. It only exaggerates your hope in what is coming after it. And as you persevere in that way, that perseverance grows our spiritual character, Paul says, strengthening our resolve all the more. So the development of spiritual character through trials is the blessing God gives to the believer because that character growth lasts into eternity and it's the basis of our reward. James says, count it all joy, brethren, when you face various trials. And then he goes on to explain the effect of those trials and they end up with being perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Speaking of your reward. So a persecuted church in general is a strong, growing church while the comfortable church is a weak and lethargic church. And then lastly, he says, our character strengthens under trials so that we become all the more sure in our hope for God's glory, leading to hope again, he says. And that hope, he says in verse 5, will not be disappointed because it's not without solid foundation. Think about what he said now in this short opening. He said, if you want proof that you have something you didn't used to have, that your justification is real, you have peace with God. And how is it you have peace with God? How do you know you have peace with God? Because even in the midst of things that the world suffers on a routine basis, you're not reacting to those things the way you're used to. You're not reacting to them the way the world did. There's something internal, innately inside you, that recognizes that when death comes, you have reason to be happy about that. You didn't have that feeling before. Christians obtain that instinct, if you want to call it that, long before they fully appreciate eschatology. Which is to say, it's not about your mental attitude changing. It's about something inside you recognizing death is no longer an enemy. God is no longer against you. And so that hope grows naturally. And Paul says that as you experience life with that inside you, it starts to create this virtuous cycle of hope leading to perseverance through trial, perseverance leading to stronger character, that stronger character only magnifying your hope. We have in us this proof, if you will, that we are at peace with God because of how our attitude, our view of life in general has changed, and particularly our view of death, of trials, and whatever comes after life. Clearly, if we were God's enemy, we would not have this sense. And Paul ends there by saying, if you notice, he mentions that we have the Holy Spirit in us. He says in verse 5, that hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So ask yourself this, if you were still God's enemy, that is to say, if faith was not enough 
if you were not fully justified, like Paul was saying, would God have put himself in you? Would God set himself up in a temple in which he's still an enemy with the one who has the temple, right? So his point is, God doesn't deposit himself in an enemy. That in itself would tell you that you are no longer at odds with God. And as you increase in godly character and persevere in trials and the like, you'll see more of the Spirit in your life. And that becomes, again, a confidence-building experience. So your life has been changed, made possible by a hope in God and the presence of the Spirit. That's your number one proof that your faith has truly accomplished something in you. Your salvation is real. Your hope will not disappoint. Just consider in your own life, this is a moment of application for you. Think about how much you've changed. If you don't do this routinely, it's worth an exercise once in a while. If you really want to be humble, talk to someone who knew you before you were a believer. In my case, my wife. Ask yourself, what's changed since before you knew Christ to who you are now? And not just your habits. Oh, I go to church now. Well, okay, but that's not really what we're talking about. How about those things you say, think, and do in private? How about the way you conduct your life in general? If you can see the good changes, you know, you'll still see things you want to fix. But if you can see the good changes, the Bible would call that good fruit. And what does the Bible say about fruit? Good fruit cannot come from what? A bad tree. The Bible says good fruit can't come from evil hearts. Not in the sense of, of a life change. Yeah, maybe you can have a good moment as an unbeliever, but you're not going to see the totality of change that we're talking about in someone's life unless there's something going on in the heart that prompts it. It can only happen when something good lives in you. And remember what Jesus said, no one's good but God alone. So God living in you is what produces the good change out of you that we see in sanctification over time. That's the evidence itself of the Spirit working inside you. That's your first proof, that you think and live differently. Philip Brooks, who's a former minister of Boston's Trinity Episcopal Church, you might not know his name, but you do know his work. He was best known for writing O Little Town of Bethlehem. In his role in that church, he was a very busy pastor, but he always was said to be relaxed, and people reported that he was always unburdened, willing to take time for any need, but they knew how much he had you know, in his work, but he just never seemed to be terribly bothered by it. And then shortly before he died, a young friend wrote to him and asked him the secret of that strength and serenity. Brooks credited his still-growing relationship with Christ, and this is what he wrote. He said, The more I've thought it over, the more sure it has seemed to me that these last years have had a peace and a fullness which there did not used to be. It is a deeper knowledge and a truer love of Christ. I cannot tell you how personal this grows to me. He is here, he knows me, and I know him. It is the most real thing in the world, and every day makes it more real. And one wonders with delight what it will grow to as the years go on. So I think that's a very eloquent way of putting what I'm trying to say out of Paul's writing, that what we are said to believe results in a true change in heaven. The proof of that is that it's already changing in us. By God's presence. Then he makes a second argument on this same point, just to make sure that you're assured that your salvation is real by faith alone. Verse 6, he says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So back in verses 1 and 2, remember that chain of events I mentioned? I said would be important later on. Here's where they become important. 
In those early verses, Paul said, first came the payment when Christ died. That's when the peace was made. Then secondly came our personal introduction to that grace by our faith in the payment. That order is important to understanding the argument that Paul is about to make now in the second half of this first question. Which came first, God's act of grace or your act of faith? Obviously, Christ died before anyone in the church placed their faith in that sacrifice. And in fact, God proclaimed his intention to put his son to death as early as Genesis 3, long before anybody was asked to believe in it. God was way ahead of us in this plan. So before you were ever personally involved in securing this salvation, God was ahead of you making that salvation. More than that, his work, Paul says, on our behalf started when we were helpless. Paul says that while we were still helpless, Christ was dying for the ungodly. Helpless refers to our prospects for finding salvation. So before Christ made the one and only payment that God will accept, there was literally no way to get to God. None. And that's true even in the Old Testament in this sense. Even an Old Testament saint who believed in the coming payment, nevertheless, when they died in faith, where did they go? They had to stay in Sheol waiting for the death of Jesus before they could then enter the throne room themselves. So the point is, God was enacting this plan long before anyone else was in a position to act, even in the Old Testament, much less did any of us contribute to the process. So what Paul does now is he compares God's sacrifice to us to a human being who might die for a fellow human being. You know, Generally, we would consider this the highest act of personal sacrifice that anybody could make on behalf of another person, right? There's nothing greater that you can give to someone else than your own life. In fact, it's so precious that we usually hesitate to do that, except under the most extreme circumstances. And he says it's exceedingly rare for someone to give up their life for another person. And even then, if we were willing, we'd only do it for someone who we thought was good. In our world, what good means here would mean someone we perceive as innocent or undeserving of death, like your own children, or your spouse, or maybe an innocent bystander, or a fellow comrade in arms. But, you know, you get outside those examples, and it's kind of hard now to think of any time you're willing to go die for someone, right? What would you say if someone suggested you die for an evil person? Like, would you die to free a murderer from death row? The very thought just seems ridiculous. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus did. The ultimate good person gave his life for the ultimate evil people, you and me. You really couldn't flip it any harder than that. You couldn't find a greater extreme than that. And if you're telling yourself, well, at least I'm not Hitler, we went through that already. (laughs) So if you doubt whether your faith is sufficient to ensure your justification, Paul says you're thinking about the problem the wrong way. You're forgetting all that the Lord did before you were ever introduced by your faith into this salvation. Because you're suggesting that God would put his own son to death for you and then introduce you to his grace by faith and give you his spirit, but then later the plan would fall apart. That somehow it wouldn't come to pass in the end. Paul says in verse 9, If God did so much for you while you were still ungodly and you were unable to even seek for this salvation, then how much more should you expect the plan to work after you've come to know him and you now have a desire for that grace? Because you do now, you're aware of it and you you treasure it. But now we're suddenly going to be worried that we're going to lose it or not keep it? Verse 10, Paul says, If while we were doing everything wrong, God reconciled us to himself by Christ's death, then how much more shall we be saved by his life, that is, his living in us? 
Before you had his guidance and his word and his love, he was doing what he did. Now he's given you all those things, but now you're in jeopardy? You begin to sense just how ridiculous the worries are that Christians will fall into, either by a bad teaching or bad assumption, that makes them think that they are in jeopardy of what they've been given by God. Might fall away, disappear. I want you to imagine two soldiers that are at war on opposite sides, and suddenly one of the soldiers decides to act in great personal risk to save the life of the enemy soldier. Imagine somehow that happened. That one soldier proved his love for the other soldier by risking his life for that enemy. Now, imagine further that the war is over later and the two men decide to meet in a local cafe and and reminisce over their experiences in war. And they meet up, they strike up a friendship. That friendship's been made possible by the noble act of that one soldier on behalf of the other. But then I want you to imagine that as they leave the table, the soldier who had been saved turns to his rescuer and says, I'm sorry, but I just don't think we can meet again. When the friend says why, the soldier says, well, I just don't think I can trust you. So I'm afraid that you might pull a gun on me and shoot me when my back's turned. That other soldier would be shocked and would ask, well, if I was willing to rescue you when you were my enemy, why would I now kill you now that you're my friend? That's what you're saying to God when you suggest that your faith in Christ's death still leaves open some possibility that it all won't work out for you in the end. If he had that concern in the first place, he would not have befriended you, so to speak, through a death of his own son. God was willing to reconcile us when we were farthest from him, then we have nothing to fear now that we are closest to him. Which leads us to the second question of the chapter. So the first question was, how do I know that what's been said about my faith is going to actually be true when I face God? The answers are, your changed life and God's willingness to put his son to death before you knew him. Those two things prove that nothing is going to separate you from the love of God. Paul comes back to that again in Romans 8. Next question, how can one man's death accomplish so much for so many? That seems like a bad math problem. It'd be like saying, I can pay the debt once, and everyone who has the same debt is covered. We just don't see how that works. Paul explains, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. This passage is kind of hard to read in English because it's typical and sometimes what happens in Greek when you translate into English and you do it very literally like they've done it in my version, it leaves something to be desired in terms of the way the wording is. It's very clunky. To explain how God is working through Christ to free us from condemnation, Paul takes us back to where condemnation started, which was in Adam. So Paul's going to examine the start of our sin problem in Adam. Then he's going to compare how Adam brought all of us down to the way Christ lifts all of us up. This is a typology. This is saying that what you learn from the one will transfer to some extent to what happens in the case of the other. So in this comparison, Paul's going to refer to the one man, who is obviously Adam. And later he's going to refer to another man, who's obviously Christ. The point for us to understand is that the solution God provides in Christ draws directly from the problem that he's solving from. What we're trusting in is based in what happened to Adam. So that if it's true that Adam created the problem, then it's just as true that Christ can solve the problem in a similar way. 
So we can see the effect that Adam had on all humanity, changing all humanity. Therefore, if we see it properly, we can understand how one man can fix that problem for all humanity. In this case, both men, Adam and Christ, they're each federal representatives of a group of people. A federal representative just means someone who rules or makes decisions on behalf of a group of people they represent. And all democracies work this way. You're not strangers to this concept. You have elected officials. They represent certain groups of of constituents, and that's a federalist system, at least at some level. The actions of those individuals we elect, they carry consequences for the people that they represent. And you accept this notion without any debate, I hope. And it works the same way for humanity in a spiritual sense. In verse 12, Paul says, Through Adam, sin entered the world. So Adam ate the fruit in disobedience to the word of God, and at the moment he did that, sin entered the world. You may remember, right before that moment, God proclaimed that if Adam were to disobey his word concerning the fruit, he said to Adam, You shall surely die. Genesis 2.16, The Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, Adam ate, disobeyed, and ate, and then he lived another over 900 years. So, he didn't physically die on the day that he ate. Which then tells us that the death God is threatening here is not physical death. It was spiritual death, which is the Bible's terminology for the arrival of a sinful, corrupt a nature that is opposed to God. So as Adam disobeyed God, his nature changed inside him. He became dead spiritually. And he died in that sense on that very day. The power that accomplished that change in his heart is the power of the Word of God itself. Since it was the proclamation of God, the decree of God, that Adam would experience spiritual death in the day he ate of it. So like Jesus told the Pharisees when he was arriving into Jerusalem and the crowd was declaring, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, a messianic welcome. The Pharisees said to Jesus, Silence your disciples, because they claimed that they were blaspheming. And Jesus said, If these do not cry out, the rocks will cry out. Because it was in the word of God that this would be said, which is a way of demonstrating the power of God's word. What God says will happen, will happen, even if rocks have to cry to make it happen. And in this case, the word said he would surely die. In the moment he ate, what God said would be, became. That's where Adam became a sinful man. Furthermore, the Lord responded to Adam's sin by going a step further, as you may remember. He cursed the earth. That is, he cursed the ground and everything that came out of it. Genesis 3.17, we hear him say this. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So Adam's body was made of dirt. In fact, the word Adam in Hebrew just means earth. So when God came upon Adam having sinned, his spirit was already spiritually dead. He had already seen that take place. In the day he ate of it, that happened. But as God came upon them in the garden and realized and found them in this state, God then took the next step and cursed the ground, which then had the effect of putting his body under a death sentence to go along with the spirit that was already dead. 
Adam's choice brought sin into existence. First, spiritual death, and then indirectly, by God's decree, physical death. Paul says, this death spread to all men. And I love the word spread. It's very, very intentional. In Greek, it means to pass through. To pass through. Understand, death is passed to you. Death is a quality that comes to you from your parents. It's not some law of the universe. It's being passed on to you, like genetics. It's coming to you from your parents. The change in Adam's spiritual nature that he experienced in the day he ate, that change became a part of him, inseparable from his physical existence. So just as Adam would pass on his physical traits when he reproduced, he was also now passing on a sinful spiritual nature to those that came from his body. That's how we know that all humanity has been born in this sinful way, in the nature of the father, Adam. And that's why Paul says we all suffer death, because death is the result of sin. That is, of Adam's sin, death came to be part of nature, in his nature, and it began to be passed down and spread And with it, our tendency to sin as well. That's why Paul says, and all men have sinned. What's important about this is this. God does not individually assess each descendant of Adam. God does not determine individually if we have sin of our own. And then pronounce some sentence against us for our sin. Death which is the penalty of sin, spreads from one person to the next, and with that, the nature of Adam, so that we are all of sin. And that means that even at childbirth, we are a sinner. What we inherit is from the womb. Death already spread to us, and we know that because infants die. And that means the sin nature that is the cause of death was there as well at that time. You follow what I'm saying? To die itself is the product of sin. If somebody dies at one day old... That means by definition they had sin on one day old or they wouldn't have died. Death is the product of sin, according to Paul. And as death spread, sin spread, and all are like Adam in that way. There is no magical age when we suddenly become accountable for our sin, as some have imagined or or come up with. We are accountable from birth, which is evidenced in the fact that we die at all ages. Paul says in verse 13, This principle held true in the world even before the law came. Even before Israel received the law from Moses. And then he goes on to say, sin was not imputed without law. What he means is, no one could say definitively what was sin before God defined it for mankind in the law. We had the conscience telling us what is right and wrong. There were rules of law that were part of culture. But you didn't have the authority of God in the law itself. You didn't know for sure what God considered an offense or what he didn't. Yet, Paul says, despite the fact that men didn't know, it was not imputed to them what was sin or what was not sin. Despite that, Paul says, people still died from Adam to Moses. People were dying. So something was being passed on from Adam to all his descendants that resulted in 100% of everyone who comes from Adam dying. That means there was 100% of everybody was in sin, even when they didn't know what sin was, even before it was imputed to them by the law. That is what we mean when you hear someone describe the theology of original sin. Original sin does not say, Adam made a mistake and we're paying for it. Original sin says, Adam's mistake changed humanity and we're all just like Adam. And that's why we're all paying for it.
Men and women inherit a nature from your parents that drive you to sin. We call ourselves sinners because we look around our life and at some point we come to realize, oh, I've got sin in my life. I act badly. I'm a sinner. But the reality is you were born a sinner and you were a sinner even before you had the capacity to act in sin. And it doesn't take very long for it to show up, by the way. Two-year-olds are nothing but blatant sinners, right? Thank God they're just small enough they can't do a lot of damage, right? The problem is when they grow up to be 16 and they haven't changed at all, and then you're in trouble. So Paul says in verse 14, Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though the law was there to convict us of what sin was. Death was the thing holding people accountable for sin, even though they had not, as Paul says, made the same kind of mistake that Adam made. Even if you didn't do exactly what Adam did, you're doing your own version of it. You name the very best person that's ever lived, we're excluding Christ for a moment, but from those who come from Adam, name the very best person you can ever name. They all come to their end eventually. And even if you want to talk about people like Enoch who are translated, that was just a nice way to die. God still had to get rid of that body. He, you know, That corruptible body cannot inherit the incorruptible. I assure you, he didn't walk into the throne room with that sinful body. So that proves that sin is something received through a birth process. It's not dependent on your individual choices and actions. All of what Paul is citing here proves that you come into life with this quality. The choices and the actions we make are merely the result of that inherited sin. So that's how you need to understand the life of every unbeliever. They are programmed to offend God. I had a pastor one time who used to say it this way, Why are we shocked when sinners sin? That's why we call them sinners. That's what they do. They sin. It shouldn't shock us. It bothers us in the sense that we care for their eternal soul. But in the interim, we aren't really concerned about cleaning up their lives. That's not solving any big problem. That's not moving them forward in the plan of God. That's just playing around with their sin. What we really want to do is cure their sin, which is something God does in the heart. The programming they have, they receive from Adam. Now, they agree with it in their hearts. It's who they are. It's all they know. And they are incapable of changing that programming on their own, short of just nibbling around the edges of it, fixing a few things in their life because the consequences get too tough to bear. But in the big scheme of things, they're just as bad as they ever will be. So one man's decision created a chain reaction through the reproduction process that led to all humanity sharing in his nature. And so Paul says, if that process can work in that way to lead mankind into condemnation, then that process can be harnessed by God to provide a solution in the same means. One man can reverse the process. One man can provide a solution. And through a new group of descendants, pass on a better nature to those descendants. That's how one man can solve the problem for many. It's not because he's applying his payment, so to speak, over and over again. It's because he's birthing you into a new line of descendants who share in his nature. Before we look into Paul's argument further, I need to pause here for just a moment because you need to appreciate an important theological implication from where we've just come. Paul's statement in verse 12 stands at odds with the teaching of evolution. The theory of evolution maintains that mankind evolved from lower-order creatures over millions of years. Before the first human ever existed, many other living things had existed, according to evolution. And that those living creatures lived, and they died, and over millions of years they managed to grow in complexity, evolve into more sophisticated forms, more sophisticated species, you know, the, the movement upward, The engine for that change, evolution would tell you, is natural selection, a set of forces that lead to the survival of the fittest and to the elimination of the weak. 
The idea says that natural selection forces the advancement of life because as the weak die out and the strong get opportunities to reproduce, they make more of the strong in the culture. So the the environment moves forward toward the strength and drops off the weak along the way. There are a lot of problems with this idea, but there's one theological issue that we now can say eliminates the possibility of evolution being true if you believe in the Bible. Because here Paul says... The Bible says death did not exist until after human beings existed. And not just human death, all death, Paul says. Because in Genesis 3, the arrival of physical death is said to come as a result of the curses, which themselves are the result of Adam's action. And that curse is where all physical death came from, because he said everything that comes out of the ground will die. Plants, animals, everything that came out of the ground. So, evolution says this, death came before mankind, because mankind evolved into a place from apes and below, and all that time death was working. And the Bible says, death came after mankind, and it's the result of Adam's sin. So, here's the dilemma, if you, if someone in this room or someone listening was a Christian and believing in the Bible and taking faith as their means of salvation, believing in Jesus' death for their sake, but also believing that evolution is true, here's the dilemma you face. If evolution is correct, and therefore the Bible is wrong, because that's what we're saying right here, right? We're saying that this is not accurately the way it worked. Then not only is Genesis wrong, but so is Romans. We're no longer arguing simply over the story of origins, of which version of origins is correct. We're now arguing over the cause of death itself. And if the cause of death is in doubt, then the meaning of Christ's death is equally in doubt. Because if death is natural, which is what evolution would teach, and not the result of some act of man, which is what evolution says, then there's no reason to trust in the death of any man for our sake. To what good purpose could Christ's death be for us if death is not the result of sin? Because the gospel says death can only be stopped by sinlessness. Sin is why we have death. The only solution to death is sinlessness. That's what the Bible says. And evolution says, no, no, no. Death has no relationship to sin or sinlessness. It was always here. In which case, Christ's sinless life and sacrificial death can't have any meaning for us in the search for the problem of death. See how that works? Because evolution would be saying, it didn't start with that problem, so it can't be fixed by that action. There had to be some other cause for death. So, it is literally, theologically impossible to hold both the view of salvation by grace, through faith, in Jesus' atoning death, and to believe in evolution. Because one negates the other. And not just in Genesis, but in Romans. So now Paul explains how Christ can solve this problem for the world. Doing it one man for one man. We'll finish up the chapter. He says, But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one... Death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. 
What Paul does here is sort of confusing because he keeps saying it does not, does not, does not. And yet it's clear he's making a comparison in how they are alike. It's another artifact of the Greek. Paul compares what Christ did for us to what Adam did for us. And he starts by saying the free gift through Christ is not like the transgression we experienced through Adam. But he means it this way. It's not like the first in the sense that it works in the opposite way. That's all he's saying. They are alike in terms of methodology or they follow a similar principle. But they work in opposite ways. One guy did something wrong. We're all in trouble. One guy did something right. We're all good. That's opposite of each other, but they're very parallel in principle. So don't let that not word throw you off. So these two men had opposite effects on humanity. One produced judgment from a single transgression. Because of one mistake, we're all under condemnation, because we share in his likeness. But the free gift of salvation covers man's transgressions, resulting in in justification. One man's act of sacrifice, a, a righteous man dying in our place, can cover as many people as are born into his likeness. Just like Adam can be responsible for literally billions of people falling down, Christ can have as many children, those who are born again in his nature, as God permits. In verse 17, Paul says, If you can accept that one man can bring the world into bondage and under penalty for that bondage, then you can accept that one man can deliver you from all of that. The mechanism that makes it possible is exactly the same mechanism, inheritance. In Adam... You all inherit your sinful nature and your physical dying body. And in Christ, the Bible says you are born again. You are literally reformed spiritually in the likeness of Christ by the Spirit. And you receive His nature in place of Adam's nature. As many children as Adam had, Christ can have as many children as the Holy Spirit gives him. So if one man's nature could be spread to all his descendants by physical birth then Christ's perfect nature can be spread to all his descendants by spiritual birth. The Holy Spirit, by the way, birthed Christ in the womb of Mary, and he births us again spiritually as well. So we both come from the same birth process, if you will. In fact, our manner of entering into God's grace is also a direct reversal of what Adam did to get us into trouble. Remember, Adam's mistake in the garden was this. He rejected the word of God He rejected the promise of God. He failed to believe in what God promised concerning a fruit. So there was a promise. Now here again, we talked about this last time. The content of his promise was about as trivial a content as you've ever heard in a promise of God. Don't eat that fruit. But it was profoundly important that he obey that one principle. So the content was, if you eat, you will see these consequences. But what was the object of his faith? If he was to have faith in that promise, his object would have been God, just as it is for us, the faithfulness of God. He heard the promise, and then he acted in a way that repudiated faith in that promise. He acted without faith in the word that God spoke to him. And so a lack of faith in the word of God brought about fall, the fall and sin and death. So God, in his wisdom, devised a plan of redemption that just reverses that error. Every born-again believer has to do the opposite of what Adam did. Put your faith or your trust into a promise of God. Now the content's changed. Now the content is Christ. But in the essence of it, we believe a promise. We place our trust and faithfulness to God. When we do, we reverse Adam's mistake, and we are born again in the likeness of Christ. And Paul ends 5.18. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. 
For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So let me summarize as Paul does. One act of sin is reversed by one act of righteousness. One act drove us away from the Father. One act brings us back to the Father. One man's mistake made many sinners. One man's obedience makes many righteous. And Paul adds a reference there to the law. You know, the law didn't come to solve this problem because it couldn't do it. Think about it. By the time you tell someone, here's a law, start following it, they've already sinned a million times. They're born a sinner. It's, it's, you can't get ahead of the birth process. You can't stop it before it starts. It only serves to highlight your sin, Paul says, not to stop it. So in that sense, Paul says in verse 20, the law's arrival only served to increase sin, which he means just to make it more evident. But then that serves to magnify the glory of God, Paul says, and this is what he means. The more you realize how much you've offended God by your sin, the more amazing grace is. So as you understand law better, you see yourself better for who you were, or maybe still are, but in the process you also come to realize the grace of God more. Like Jesus said to the Pharisee in Luke seven forty seven, For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. It's the idea that the more you recognize what you've been saved from, the more you have love for God in the process. Paul ends in verse 21, making the ultimate comparison. I love this last comparison between these two guys, our federal representatives. You ever heard somebody refer to Jesus as a guy? The last comparison. Sin is reigning over the unsaved on the earth, the sons of Adam. It is their master. They live under its power because it condemns them. Meanwhile, grace is reigning in the life of believers to bring righteousness and eternal life through Jesus Christ. Because we are not under that curse of death, so death doesn't master us. We will live again without condemnation. All right. I'll end with a quote. I love this quote um, from Wearsby. He said, Adam came from the earth. Jesus came from heaven. Adam was tested in a garden, surrounded by beauty and love. Jesus was tempted in a wilderness and died on a cruel cross surrounded by hatred and ugliness. Adam was a thief and was cast out of the paradise. Jesus Christ turned to a thief and said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. The Old Testament is the book of the generations of Adam, and it ends with a curse in Malachi. The New Testament is the book of the generations of Jesus and ends with no more curse in Revelation. So everything that Adam did, Jesus reverses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ and his salvation. We thank you that he lived the obedient life we couldn't. We thank you so much, Father, that you introduced us to that grace by the faith that we have. And we thank you, Father, for the eternal security that comes with that. Having been made new in Christ, Father, we are new creatures. The old things have passed away and better things have come. And we rejoice in that. Father, thank you for the confidence it offers. Let us share that with others, especially when we find that brother or sister who is wavering in their confidence for whatever reason. Father, let us use what we now have out of Romans 5 to strengthen their walk. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.